Hello and welcome to the Steve Poos Benson Podcast. It's been a while since I've published. Uh, my life and work have gotten in the way, but here we are on a beautiful June afternoon and I've uh, decided to sit down and get this uh, get this podcast published out to you. I had an interview that I've been waiting to publish uh, that I've been wanting to share. It's an interview with Dr. Mark Foster. Mark and I have known each other for several years now here at Columbine United Church. I interviewed Mark as part of my series on spiritual abuse that I've been doing. Hopefully you've gotten something, uh, some type of insight out of these past two interviews. Uh, Mark's interview is very compelling for me as he shares his journey with Mormonism and coming to a place in a spiritual journey where he had to leave the Mormon church. He put his family relationships at risk, but he couldn't stay any longer with the religion. He literally talks about taking a leap of faith. Well, Mark doesn't describe his upbringing as spiritual abuse, but instead he talks about one as spiritual liberation. I really find it compelling and moving because uh, I know that it describes a lot of the journeys that the, that many of you have had, moving away from fundamentalism, taking that leap of faith, and moving into something much more new, open, and uni- universal. At the end of the interview, uh, Mark sings an original song. I apologize for the distortion. My low-tech mic wasn't able to grab a hold of the of the purity of the song, but I wanted to share it nonetheless. Hopefully, you're in the middle of great spiritual liberation, and you're enjoying your spiritual journey, and you're enjoying a summer day. As always, thanks for listening. I'm sitting here today with my good friend, Mark Foster. Mark and I have known each other several years, uh, first as a CUC member, but more as just kind of a a philosophical colleague. We get together about uh, once a month over at... what is the name of that? Bean Fosters. Bean Fosters. Ironically. Over no the, no relation. No relation to, <laughs> to Mark. So uh, ever since when I started doing this podcast, I knew I wanted to have Mark on the show just because he's brilliant. He's got a lot of good insights. He's a lot of fun. And uh, I know that you're going to enjoy this interview. So Mark, what I want to do is uh, initially I wanted to, to we when I started this whole thing, I wanted to talk about spiritual abuse. But when I talked with you, I realized that for me, the conversation I wanted to have with you is spiritual liberation. Because when I think about your whole journey of your faith development, I talk about, I think about someone who's really been liberated in faith. So that's the direction that I want to go. But let's start. So tell us, tell me a little about who you are. Tell everybody who you are. Sure. Uh, my name is uh, Mark Foster. We know your name. We know your name. And um, I'm from Littleton. I went to Chatfield High School, and I'm a doctor. I work for Kaiser. I have. Uh, I'm mar- married for 20 years this summer, and we have three kids. My daughter just graduated from Chatfield, and then we have two boys that are teenagers as well. So busy times at our house. And uh, <laughs> two teenagers. Yeah. Woo. So um, yeah, that's me. I- I'm from this area, and. Uh, I started coming to CUC seven or eight years ago now as part of kind of my journey that I'm sure we're going to get into a little bit. Well, so let's talk about your journey. I mean, one of the interesting things about your journey is that you were raised in the Mormon faith. And that's one of the things that I found really intriguing is that you were raised in the Mormon faith and you eventually left the Mormon faith. But we'll cover that in a few more minutes. Talk to me about your upbringing. I Mm -hmm. mean, the Mormon faith is interesting. There had to be a lot of uh, wonderful things about the faith. So tell me about, just kind of ramble a little bit. Tell us us what it was like growing up in a Mormon family. So, uh, yeah, so when we first talked about this subject, we talked about spiritual abuse versus spiritual liberation, spiritual freedom. And when I think about spiritual 
uh, freedom and my own journey and then my kind of journey through Mormonism and then out of it, it was a, it was a very central element of my life growing up. My parents were both Mormon converts, but by the time I was born, they were both Mormon and I grew up, uh, that's kind of all that I knew. And I have actually really fond memories of my childhood. I have good relationships with my parents still. There's been a lot of pain uh, with me leaving the church, but you know, I, I have a hard time looking back and and thinking of my situation as like an abusive situation because my memories are fond. My my mm-hmm. I was kind of surrounded by love and a community, uh, parents that I knew that loved me. Not that there's not some a shadow side to all of that, but uh, so. Uh, I was raised, I towed the line. Uh, I, I'm, I'm what does from, that mean, you towed the line? What does that mean? I'm from a big family. So there's. Uh, I have an older brother, I have four younger brothers, and then I have a youngest sister. So seven siblings. Uh-huh. I kind of had Is that the, typical in a Mormon it, family? It used to be. It's not so much anymore. But um, yeah, Mormons have tr- traditionally had very large families. Okay. Part of that was there used to be a... Uh, uh, Doctrine, or an understanding at least, uh, against birth control, oh. among other things, kind of like Catholicism. Right? Mm-hmm. Catholics and Mormons are famous for having big families. My family was one of those, um, and I I grew up really uh, as as just kind of a straight arrow sort of kid. I followed the rules. Um, my dad was a bishop in the Mormon Church, and um, which I, means what? That he was a a. Um, like a pastor, I guess, but it's a it's a lay clergy position. There's mm-hmm. no pay for it, and he led the local congregation known as wards. Usually, you know, two hundred, three hundred uh, people and uh, of families, and then he was kind of the bishop of the flock, so to speak. Okay, and so he had uh, ecclesiastical responsibilities over that. And you know, I remember having a lot of pride that my dad was the bishop, and um, kind of feeling a sense of uh, obligation too and duty that I had to toe the line, so to mm-hmm. speak, as far mm-hmm. as do the right things and live up to the Did example. You, were you going to, to temple worship? What is it called? Yeah, so that happens when you turn 18, basically, and you're ready to go on, on a mission. So that, when you were younger, what's it called going to church? You just call uh, it going to church? Uh, go, uh, yeah, it's just sacrament meeting is sacrament. what it's called. Were yeah. you always going to sacrament meetings? Uh, every Sunday of my life, yeah. Every Sunday of yeah. your life. We were pretty devout. I mean, there's in every, any religion, I think there's a range of, you know, of devoutness. Uh, we were quite devout. We respected the Sabbath day. Um, what did that know, look like? That means that you uh, don't go out, you don't uh, spend money, you don't um, even wow. play with friends on Sundays. You stay, wow. you go to church, and then you kind of stay with the family and uh, stay home and read your scriptures and uh, you know do spiritual things on on Sundays. And that was you know Sundays at my house growing up. We didn't uh, drink coffee or alcohol or cigarettes. There's a strict health code called the Word of Wisdom in Mormonism. And we, you know, my family was a excellent example of that. Uh, you know, all of that stuff was strictly prohibited to the point I was actually well into my adulthood, terrified of any, you know, even coffee. It sounds kind of. I funny. remember when yeah. you had one of your first cups of coffee. Yeah, I was like, whoa, yeah, Mark, you're stepping out. <laughs> yeah. So um, there, there's a famous kind of Mormon ex-Mormon meme of a picture of Jesus holding a, a Mormon kind of at the pearly gates, so to speak, and Jesus. 
is quoted saying, I'm so glad you didn't drink coffee. Oh, <laughs> it's, just, it's a joke, but it's kind of funny. That's my sense of like, that was part of, that was actually pretty central to my upbringing as this health code and being huh. really circuit. We don't, I didn't even drink Coca-Cola or any caffeinated drinks or anything. Um, so is that also fairly, fairly typical of a Mormon family? Is that yeah. being a healthy lifestyle? Yep. And that's part of like, when I look back on my Mormon experience, I had... I was surrounded by, you know, kind of this family values, but a strong nuclear family with uh, loving parents and a religious structure, a value structure, I guess. Um, and then this kind of health code um, and all of that, you know, I didn't really resent it at all. I was actually really proud of my identity as a, as a Mormon. I was different, you know, I kind of held, I held my values up high and, uh, and, and that lasted through high school. And then I went to BYU out in Utah, in Provo, Utah, was my freshman year. And after that, I went on a mission to Brazil, which is a voluntary mm-hmm. service that most Mormon young men are required or strongly encouraged to, to take uh, that opportunity. You pay your own way, or my parents paid my own way. And um, I learned language in Provo at the Missionary Training Center for th- uh, three months. And then I went to Brazil um, and was there for nearly two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. And ironically, this last Sunday, you preached on the movie The Mission. Right. And we talked about this afterwards. Uh, that movie was located in the place in Brazil where I was at. I wow. was at the city that's now near those waterfalls. Wow. And cool. I was on a mission there. So that's kind of a... That cool. That's yeah. kind of a small world type of thing. Yeah. So I just thought of something that, um, that we've kind of touched on in the past, is that, that you had a really good family, uh, upbringing is that typical, or is there a shadow side that there are some oppression within the Mormon, some Mormon families that bring a lot of despair for yep. kids, for women, for yep. Um, and this is kind of starting to dive dive into the shadow side, and I think maybe we'll get back to this kind of how I became aware of that. Mm-hmm. There is a, you know, kind of a smiling facade that Mormon families have. There's this ideal of perfection that uh, Mormons are expected to kind of live up to. And uh, you kind of wear that on your sleeve. You let your light show so shine, you know, you're a city on a hill, so to speak. And um, so I, I think uh, for me, um, you know, I didn't perceive at least until later in life, kind of the shadow side of things. But, oh, yeah, there like any culture and religion, there are highly dysfunctional families, highly dysfunctional um, systems at play. And especially if you are a nonconformist, um, especially... Nonconformist Mormon? Yeah, well, okay. of, of lifestyle. If you're LGBTQ or if um, you're just an outside-of-the-box thinker, if you're an intellectual, um, there's tough-to-find space in the orthodoxy of a f- fundamentalist religion. And for all of the good stuff that I've just mentioned about Mormonism, it is a fundamentalist religion, right. you know? So then that's a good segue. Um, at some point in your life, I don't know if it was after you were married, before you were married, because uh, you were being groomed, right, to become a bishop and, and all this good stuff. I mean, here you are coming from a stellar family, a stellar example. You were, right? You were being yeah. groomed? Well, I groomed is, uh, I think that I was kind of, uh, I'd say probably slated for leadership uh-huh. opportunities going forward because uh, having uh, gone to BYU, gone on my mission, uh, eventually gone to medical school in Arizona, residency, 
and then moving back into Littleton to start my practice, I was kind of this, you know, successful or perceived as a successful young man coming back to his home. And uh, I was put in some leadership positions over the young men. And I did have, you know, the higher the hierarchy, the, the, the um, it's called the stake, but it, it's the larger organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of those leaders came up to me and put his hand on my shoulder and said, hey, we, you know, Mark, uh, we've got big plans for you, you know, and I interpreted that, I think, correctly to mean, hey, you know, they realized that I had leadership potential and um, I was probably going to be having future opportunities of leadership. And that was something that I had considered uh, as kind of, I don't know if it's a destiny sort of thing, but I kind of thought that that would be a big part of my life as kind of leading probably being a bishop or something like that and kind of leading my own flock at some point, you know, within the within the Mormon church. How old were you when that happened? That was probably when I was, you know, between the range of 35 to 37. Uh-huh. Um, so you were married? Oh, I was married for 10, uh, going on 12 years, uh-huh. kind of at the time that my faith crisis uh-huh. kind of began to fully mature. And um, that was in that time frame that okay. I started to really actively question some of my beliefs. Okay. Well, did your wife uh, buy in? And that's not the right word, but I'm going to go with the buy into the whole Mormon vision of oh, yeah. the family and the family structure and what you were trying to do to duplicate what it was that you were raised in. Correct. Okay. So what, did both of you have the same vision for your family? Yeah. So my wife's story and I... I is similar to mine. She was the oldest of a large Mormon family. She had four younger brothers. She was from California, and uh, her, you know, life aspirations were similar. She was a very faithful, devout Mormon young woman. Wanted to serve a mission. She and I met at BYU, and after we met, she went to Uruguay on a mission, uh, and was a fantastic missionary. And came back, and when she came back, is when we got married. And we got married in the Mormon temple, and that was really the absolute gravitational. Got married in the temple in Salt yeah. Lake. Uh, actually, in Denver. There's in one Denver. in Littleton here. Right, right, right. Okay. Yep. Um, but you have to be a faithful Mormon and obeying all all of your covenants and uh-huh. paying your tithing and all of uh-huh. these other things to be able to be married in there. But we, you know, were very happy to do it. That was what we anticipated our, you know, life, how our married life would begin, and. and we did, and we were actually quite happy for the most part, especially early on in our marriage in the church. And both of us came into that marriage and our relationship with the basic understanding that the, the church was the center of our life, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, that may be a segue in talking, yeah, talking about kind of how my faith started to crumble right. a little bit. Right, because, you know, I'll never forget one time we, we were talking about this and you and you, um, you described that you felt as though you had chains mm-hmm. around your head, around your soul. So let's go there. What did that what happened that started everything to begin to crumble for you? Yeah. So when I look back and I see various points in my life where I did have active doubts, and invariably the cost of entertaining those doubts was much higher than I was willing to pay at every juncture because there's such a social cost, an emotional and a spiritual cost to questioning my beliefs. And um, for all of my family and friends, and I have many, like my, one of the things, my brothers are highly, highly intelligent. Um, I have many highly intelligent, educated friends, and they choose to stay Mormon, you know, and they fully believe. And I, I honor their belief, you know. 
But for me, those questions uh, had popped up at various times. And I think my coping mechanism uh, was to put it on the shelf. Uh, Ex-Mormons, we have a kind of um, slang term for, for the place where you put all the beliefs that just don't fit. And it's back on the shelf, uh, kind mm-hmm. of back in the corner of your mind is how I envision it. And um, that shelf can carry a lot of weight. Just there's the more and more questions that yeah, you have. It's like, hey, the Book you of Mormon to, maybe didn't actually happen. And so you try to stay you put it on faithful. The you try to stay faithful. You try to stay within the confines, for lack of a better word, of the faith. But these questions begin to emerge, and you put them on the shelf, back yep. in the corner of your brain, saying, I can't figure this out. There's some cognitive dissonance there, so I'm going to put it on the shelf. That's an interesting concept. Yeah. Okay. And then the shelf, sometimes it holds, and for many people it holds for life. For me, it cracked, and uh, for for most ex-Mormons, our fairly common experience, uh, for many of us, is that it kind of cracks all at once. I think that's why that metaphor works. It's like, hey, the shelf is holding a lot of weight. And all your questions. One all more thing, doubts. but then suddenly it all collapses. Wow. There's kind of a house of cards sort of sense to it. Like, right. uh, you know, you pull out the one and just everything falls, and that was my experience. So I... You know, before my mission, during my mission, my time at BYU, through medical school, I look back now and I can think of a variety of things where I was like, that doesn't really make sense, but boom, back on the shelf, you know. But it wasn't until I was through all of my medical training that I think, and I think all along there was kind of this trajectory I was on, like I was going through undergraduate and medical school and residency, and it was like I was getting somewhere, you know, I was, I was had a destination and I was still on, on the, on the train, so to speak, heading there. So there wasn't a lot of time to question my beliefs. I just took it for granted that this was kind of part of my journey, but having kind of arrived and starting to actually practice medicine, have my career, my family's getting older. And I think there's a magical thing about the mid thirties too, of just kind of, uh, intellectual maturity, spiritual maturity. It's a, you know, a time frame when people maybe start, you know, they're, they're kind of on their own and living their own life. Mm-hmm. And they start to question, is this the life I want to live? And so it was in kind of 2009, 2010, when we were back in Littleton, that I started to question a Your lot of my beliefs. Mid-30s? Mid-30s. I was probably around 35 when I started kind of actively questioning. And um, How old are you when, like, the shelf broke? 37. 37. And I had an instant, and I think if you'll, if I can try and do this concisely here, I'll kind of, there's several milestones on that journey. Yeah, go for it. But um, I remember uh, my, my daughter's baptism, actually. So as a Mormon, faithful Mormon man, you're able to baptize your own children when they turn eight. And I had been starting to really question a lot of my beliefs. I never, ever spoke to my wife about it. It was kind of totally taboo to like express doubt within my marriage at that time. And um, so I was kind of living in my head with my own doubts. And there was a lot of excitement about my daughter's baptism. It's a big event, you know, family comes and there's a white dress and, uh, you know, kind of a celebration. And I remember thinking, hoping that this would kind of reinforce my faith and kind of put me back on track. But I remember the opposite happening of feeling really empty about it mm-hmm. because seeing my daughter who trusted me so implicitly um, and knowing that she's only eight years old and I'm kind of literally baptizing her into a faith system that maybe I wasn't fully on board with anymore. 
but I couldn't be authentic with her. And it was a, a moment in time where I kind of began to firmly conceptualize that maybe I, maybe I don't actually believe this and maybe that's going to be a problem. Did the shelf start cracking? I think it start. I think it was starting to be weighed down. Weighed down. And and I actually one thing I do want to say is I did no I did almost no uh, research on my own like into questioning the core doctrines of Mormonism and the historical uh, uh, the factual basis of the religion because there's all sorts of truth claims that Mormonism makes. Um, and I only knew what the official church sources kind of told me. And mm-hmm. my main points of questioning were the, the authenticity of the Book of Mormon, which is this narrative of these, uh, you know, Jews that fled Palestine area in the 600 BC and settled, you know, sailed by boat to America. And that, those were the, the ancestors of the American Indians today. And they had this whole culture and they believed in a Jesus that would come. And so that, and that's like fundamental to Mormonism, and it's uh, antithetical. I just, I, just, I just put my hand, my <laughs> my hands in my head. And I shook my head. It's like that just seems like so out there. But yeah. this is the official teaching. It's the official teaching, and I think uh, it's one of those items that just doesn't withstand scrutiny. And there's an entire industry of Mormon apologetics uh, and archaeology and pseudoscience. Uh, but anybody that you know can provide unbiased research towards, uh, you know, those truth claims of the Book of Mormon in particular, there's only one answer, and that's a, that's just a made-up tale, you know. And so it's, it's not real, so that was one of my early doubts. The other doubt was the whole Mormon history of polygamy, which is, uh, you know, now Mormons today are not polygamists, but it is in their scriptures, the doctrine of polygamy, and Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, the two founders of the religion, had 35 plus wives each, you know. And so there, I had a real problem with that. I never understood how a just and loving God could, you know, endorse uh, polygamy. So that was a major shelf item. And then racism. The Book of Mormon tells the tale of uh, the American Indians actually being um, cursed by God with dark skin. Uh, for wow. being disobedient, and wow. and uh, and then Mormonism up until 1978 uh, refused to allow African American men to hold the the Mormon priesthood, and they couldn't be fully members of the church. And there was an entire legacy of the kind of orthodox racism around that. And in 1978, there was a revelation received. This was a full, you know, ten years. 15 years after Martin Luther King's I Had a Dream speech, so kind of behind the times, and there was a lot of social pressure for them to change that doctrine, and they kind of did it in one fell swoop. They said, well, God gave us a different, you know, uh, commandment now, and now all worthy males only (laughs) can hold the priesthood, Um, and so that kind of went away, but there's a historical record of all of these prophets justifying the racist doctrine and stuff. So that was a big problem for me. And then uh, what I think is the the treatment of women, you know, um, it kind of goes back to that polygamy question, but women aren't allowed to be fully, uh, well, they're very active in the church, but they can't hold priesthood or authority positions. Mm -hmm. Uh, They can't be bishops. They can't be, um, you know, general authorities. Um, So there is a, you know, that was a big problem for me too, especially raising my daughter and kind of seeing the world through my daughter's eyes and seeing what that would be like for her to 
continue in this religion and be expected, have certain expectations on her, but not be uh, able to kind of fully um, explore all the possibilities that her life could be. So that was that moment of baptism of her where mm-hmm. that was all kind of coming together, these active doubts uh, about all those historical uh, and doctrinal teachings and then kind of seeing it through my daughter's eyes. So the shelf is beginning to creak. It's weighing down, yep. crack, crack, and it goes bam. Well, so a couple more milestones that I'll try and get through quickly. There was a meeting that we had once kind of at the at the um, you know apex of this crisis that I had, there was a Mormon apostle that came to Littleton, and um, that was a, a tremendous honor. So there's only 12 apostles in the world, 15 I guess uh, total if there you count the prophet himself and his counselors. But for them to come to our local area was uh, you know deal. a big deal, and yeah. I was trying to wrestle with my own faith and trying to rally my sense of testimony. I wanted to believe. And I remember coming to this meeting and being, um, first of all, really uh, kind of turned off by the personality of this leader that I just, he seemed very pretentious to me. And I was having a hard time figuring out, was that just kind of my own internal struggles perceiving him that way? Um, But there's all of this kind of pomp and circumstance with that sort of visit. Everybody stands and there's all sorts of, you know, homage being uh, play, uh, paid to him. And, um, so that kind of turned me off, but there was a moment in that meeting that was a big, big shelf item. And somebody asked the question, there was a kind of a Q and a, and somebody asked the question and said, um, what can we do elder to, to this apostle so that we never stray from the one true church? That's a core belief of Mormonism, that it is the only true church on the earth, God's restored mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. And every other church is wrong. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's yeah, the flip well, side of that doctrine. Welcome to fundamentalism. Welcome right. to evangelical. Welcome to Catholicism. I mean, my guy, so exactly. everybody's claiming the corner on the market here. Yeah. Okay, so go ahead. He asked the question. So, yeah, so somebody asked that question to him, and he responded and said, My dear brothers and sisters, um, the answer is simple. Just be good boys and girls and do as you're told. And this was to a room full of adults. And he said it in a slightly playful way, you know. But I saw, I looked around, I just sat up in my chair. I've been kind of drifting off, I think, a little bit. And it was just kind of, I sent chills down my spine like, uh, no, that's not the answer to do as you're told, to be a good boy and girl. And I thought it was incredibly condescending. And But I'm looking around and I saw... Most everybody else and that I knew seemed to be kind of, uh, um, you know, soaking that in with a sense of like, oh, that's the truth. You know, that's what, that's it's easy. That's all we need to do. But that moment in time was a moment where I kind of internalized the thought, maybe this isn't my tribe. If that's what this tribe believes in, that the secret is to do as you're told, that's probably not my tribe. So then the next thing was um, I... I made an appointment to speak with uh, my bishop at the time, who was a really good man and a friend of mine. And I wanted to share with him this crisis that I was having. I wanted some help, you know, because I felt like I I could not kind of see past this cloud in my mind of, of, uh, of of disbelief that I was experiencing. Like, where is that going to end? Where does this road end? I couldn't, I could not kind of see myself as separated from, my Mormon identity. It was almost impossible for me to see how that would play out, you know. 
So I was really just filled with angst. It was in this time frame when you asked about the chains around my brain, I was having tremendous tension headaches um, uh, frequently. And I was insomnia, all sorts of symptoms of kind of depression, um, anxiety, and then the, but these intense physical headaches that I would get uh, at least a few times a week. And they were tension headaches or typically band-like headaches in your temples, you know, but it did have a physical sensation of a chain that somebody was just choking, you know, a choke chain around my head. And, um, and that physical pain that I was experienced was really like a manifestation, I think, of that internal spiritual war that I was waging. Um, this sense of like, something's holding me back. I want to break free, but I can't. And, and I'm experiencing pain from that. And that pain was manifesting uh, in my marriage, for sure. We were going through a really rocky stretch because I did not, at that juncture in my life, feel like I could talk to my wife. I feel like she expected me to be this perfect Mormon man. And my expectation was the same of her to be a perfect Mormon wife and mother. And we just weren't actually connecting on a human level with each other. And I was feeling uh, that marital turmoil, that internal turmoil, the physical pain. So I made this appointment with my bishop. And I had actually ironically read a scripture in the Book of Mormon, which I at that point no longer really believed to be factual, but I thought maybe it's still a spiritual text. You know, Mm -hmm. I can still No, I understand that. Yeah. So I read a scripture and that scripture said, um, it's a famous scripture in Mormonism. Well, to me it was famous, (laughs) but it was about the law of Moses. So these ancient uh, American Indians that were from, you know, that were actually Jews, they believed that Jesus was going to come, but they still had to obey the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments and all of that. And there was a scripture that said, this Mormon prophet in the Americas said, uh, hey, the law of Moses is dead unto us, but our hope is alive in Christ. And when I read that, I thought, received what I thought was a spiritual insight. I thought, yes, that's it. Like all of this temple covenants and, and uh, this, these doctrines that I don't believe in anymore, those are just kind of what I'm required to do now. But my hope is alive in something beyond that. Like there's got to be a bigger picture in this kind of box of Mormonism that I was just feeling like I was, you know, uh, stuck in. And so I had this kind of realization and I, uh, I made this appointment with my bishop and I went and I shared that scripture and that insight. And I said, Hey, um, you know, what do you think of this? Because to me, this kind of means that maybe there's something beyond this, you know, that I'm, I just have to go through these motions now. And at some point I'll be rewarded with this deeper, spiritual, you know, understanding. And, um, he, he sat up in his chair and this is a good man that I really respect and still respect, but he looked at me kind of blankly and he said, well, we have the gospel. What else could there be? (laughs) And I remember thinking, ah, that was not the answer I needed. This was not this sort of spiritual wisdom. This was a man that should have been, or was in a position to kind of be my spiritual guide through this turmoil and I just thought that is not it you know there's so that was the next thing and then the, the last thing is in being a doctor I kind of self-diagnosed myself as depressed and I made an appointment to start myself on an antidepressant because I thought man I can't sleep I'm getting these headaches I'm fighting with my wife and and um, all of this is a symptom of just I can't uh, I, you know I'm depressed I must have a medical disorder of some kind and I made an appointment 
And the night before that appointment, I was sitting in my uh, room at home and I just, as, as clearly as I've ever heard the still small voice inside, wow. I, I had this overwhelming feeling I have to cancel that appointment. Wow. And I remember almost looking up like, who's telling me that sort of thing? And I, and I just remember this thought crystallizing it in my mind. You have to push through this. You can't go mm-hmm. around it. And I called up at like 4.45 and I canceled my appointment for 8 o'clock the next morning. And I sat back in my chair and I just thought... Fasten your seatbelt, baby. Something's coming. I mean, I had this sense of that was my final lifeline to rescue myself from this spiritual turmoil. And I didn't know what was going to happen next. And sure enough, about a week later, um, we were actually at Keystone on a family ski trip. And I had an argument with my wife. And I went to bed up there just kind of really restless. And all of these things were swirling and I didn't sleep at all that night. I never sleep well at altitude anyways, but I just wrestled in my mind and I just thought, okay, I'm going to go there. I'm going to explore this thought path to where it leads. I'm going to push through that fog. I'm going to see where it goes. And all of these different things about my dissatisfaction with uh, my career, my, my, uh, my church, my marriage, all of this stuff, it just kind of coalesced. And I found myself at the edge of a cliff in my mind. And I, don't, I was not in any sense suicidal, but I had this sense of leaping into the abyss. Mm. And I remember standing on that edge and I thought, I've been here before. And I've, nev- I've always retreated because that just looks like blackness down there. What is life like down there? And then I looked around kind of over my shoulder and I saw the life I had been living. And I got to that point where I'm like, but what is that life? Like, I don't want to keep living this life. This isn't my authentic life. And I made a moment, a decision in that moment to leap into the abyss. And it, it really was like an instant. I just thought, okay, I'm jumping in there. I'm going to, I don't believe the church is true. Boom. And having said that in my mind, my path was laid out before me after I was kind of falling Um, But I knew that, you know, whatever happened, it was going to happen, but I wasn't going back. There was kind of no going back at that point. And an amazing thing happened is when I woke up that next morning, I felt a really, really intense calmness, a peace that settled over me that I hadn't felt in years. Um, I thought my wife would probably divorce me when I told her. Um, But I woke up and I said, hey, I'm sorry about last night. You're probably not going to understand this, but I've decided I'm not going to be Mormon anymore. I don't believe. And um, to her credit, she didn't divorce me. (laughs) She was quiet for a few days, um, but we eventually started talking. And we actually shared our actual doubts with each other, our concerns, um, how we felt the church could be potentially injuring our marriage and our family. Also, all of the good things that it brought to us and what life would be like beyond that. And I'm so fortunate that I actually finally connected on a human level with my wife. There's this kind of image in Mormonism of the man-woman-God triangle. You know, it's like it's a three-way relationship, so to speak, Mm -hmm. and God's at the pinnacle of that. But what it ended up, when I look back on it, it felt like God was in the middle of our relationship, you know, and Mm -hmm. blocking us from Mm -hmm. seeing each other. Mm -hmm. And when we kind of kicked that out, Mm-hmm. It was just two people sitting in a room thinking, how are we going to make this work? Mm-hmm. Do we have 
do we have something left here to build on? And fortunately we did. And, and it wasn't easy sailing after that. There's been a lot of transition out of that, uh, that decision, a lot of pain, but you know, my marriage is, uh, super strong now. I'm, um, totally in love with my wife and we've had, uh, just an amazing kind of rebirth of our relationship. And I think it's been really good for our kids, um, you know, and, uh, and our own happiness, you know, right. You know, it's really interesting listening to your story. There's a, a theory uh, by James Fowler, and I need to do a podcast on James Fowler. because what you just talked about is a classic stage three, stage four transition, which mm-hmm. means nothing but to me. But it's just classic stepping into the abyss and not knowing what it is that's out there. But you know, you can't stay where you where you are. You've got to go forward. Yeah. And so you leap and you jump and you know you don't know what's going to be there. But suddenly you find peace. Yep. You find happiness. You find joy. You find a sense. So what does your spiritual journey look like since then? So about six months or so after that night that I just described, we actually went to church for the last time. And we didn't know, we, we both felt, my wife and I both felt that maybe we're still kind of Christian universalist. Um, we didn't know what we were anymore, but we still felt the desire to believe and a sense of like confusion. If we didn't have a church at the center of our life, what were we going to do? So we explored a variety of churches in the area and none of them really fit. And my wife saw, drove up Platte Canyon one day and saw the CUC marquee and it said something. She said, we should maybe try that one out. That was literally how we knew about CUC. And I said, okay. And I just showed up one Sunday. I looked when the service started. I sat in the very back pew. You got up, Steve, to preach. And you read the scripture first. And the scripture was the story of Noah's Ark. And I remember just kind of rolling my eyes and, you know, in, in, by myself in the back pew there thinking, oh, my goodness, this is going to be like a literalistic church, you know. Uh, uh-huh. <laughs> and you read the scripture. And then you said, now i got to tell you all something. This is just a story. This didn't actually happen. And you saying that was a, a, um, like a light in my brain that I just so appreciated. It was like, yes, it's just a story. And here's a guy that's a pastor that's saying it, you know, this is a metaphor, Gilgamesh, whatever. And you kind of preached about the lessons we can learn from the story, but without having to rely on a literalistic faith. And then, Uh, I made an appointment. I came a few more Sundays, and each Sunday you talked about Buddhism and uh, Hinduism and all these kind of world religions that you kind of wove into your your sermons, and it just really resonated with me because that was kind of where I felt my faith going, this more kind of universalist direction. So I made an appointment to come into your office right here, and I met you, and I don't know if you remember that day, but I did probably what I'm doing right here. I just kind of spilled it all. Mm-hmm. over an hour and I remember thinking man I just he's probably going to think I'm crazy <laughs> <laughs> and you just at the very end you were very patient you were an excellent listener but you just said you opened up your arms like this and you said Mark welcome to the journey and that was again such an affirming thing for me to hear because up to that point I had my own kind of I had my Mormon family and friends that had been very um, hurt, I think, and confused by my decision to leave the church. And I felt all of those relationships were frayed. And I didn't have a single ex-Mormon friend at that time, other than my wife. And uh, to have my journey be affirmed by somebody saying, wow, 
you heard the whole story. And um, you just said, welcome to the journey. And I remember this sense of acceptance by you that just really resonated with me. And, um, and I've, I've actually remembered that a lot on my cool. journey because it, it helps me, it's, it's helped me to kind of frame my journey in a larger kind of journey of uh, psychological and spiritual growth. And um, rather than kind of the sense of just leaving, it's like, what am I growing into? You know? Cool. So we're kind of over, uh, we need to wrap up Sorry. my time here. No, this is good. This is good. Because you have your guitar. I want you to sing a song for us. Um, in just a few words, describe your what you're exploring with your spiritual soul right now. Yep. Um, so I would consider myself not at all religious. Uh-huh. And quasi spiritual, uh-huh. you know, I, I have a sense that there is a cosmic mystery. Mm-hmm. Um, I am kind of rebel against any sense of orthodoxy, and I've I've decided that I'm probably never going to label myself as you know part of a specific belief system. So I, I kind of am enjoying this kind of sense of hey, I'm not bound by a creed or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, I follow my internal compass. I think you know I'm probably more agnostic than anything else. Honestly, uh-huh. um, humanist, uh, existentialist, mm-hmm. um, an, ag- an Einsteinian agnostic. I read a biography of Einstein, and he had this view that kind of science and order is God sort of thing. And yeah. there's this kind of sense that I have about that, this yeah. kind of cosmic mystery that Einstein was trying to figure out, you know, that's kind of based in science. But there's also a kind of a mysticism about it. And um, and I'm I'm kind of okay, actually, with... That uncertainty. I actually kept a blog called Welcome to Uncertainty.blogspot.com. Is um, it, are you still writing I, I don't do it, but when I turned 40, I decided I was going to, for one year, put myself through a spiritual kind of uh, pathway. Mm-hmm. And um, and I just kind of blogged about it uh, through through a whole year. And it's still up online if anybody ever wants to read it. Um, but it's called Welcome to Uncertainty. But that was kind of my sense of like, hey, there may not be a final answer. There may not be a one true church, mm-hmm. um, and that's okay. And the existentialist in me just says, you know, uh, the meaning of life is to give life meaning. You get to choose. You know, it's it's your choice. And uh, and there's that that can be a very scary thing to entertain because it feels like you're kind of not. There's no uh, structure around that mm-hmm. necessarily, but it's also incredibly empowering to think about uh, that, hey, I'm the one, I'm the captain of this ship and I get to define what my life is going to mean. What would you tell uh, Mormons who are thinking about leaving the church that their shelf is beginning to break? What advice would you, because I'm hoping there'll be some some uh, Mormons that are listening to this. Yeah. What would, you, what would you tell them if their shelf is beginning to break? I'd say when you find yourself up at the edge of that cliff uh, or when you find yourself stuffing things back on that shelf, see if you can push through the fear and just keep asking the question because the question is going to lead you uh, to the truth, I think, you know, to the truth of the matter of whatever doctrine you're questioning or the, the ultimate, you know, truthfulness of, of the church. But don't be afraid to question, you know, the, the scientific method of uh, analyzing, hypothesizing, trying to, you know, uh, to, to break down uh, any sort of truth claim follow that you know science is the best thing that we've had to lead us towards truth and it's it's um it's a great method uh to explore uh your your own religion and i think there's this kind of sense there's so many scientific 
Mormons out there, engineers and doctors and dentists and all sorts of people in the scientific field. And yet it's uncommon that people apply critical thinking to their own belief system. And if you do, the truth will manifest itself. So don't be afraid of asking those questions. You have a song to sing. I do. I want to hear the song. Okay. Um, And I want to briefly introduce it. This is a song that I wrote kind of in the immediate aftermath, well, a couple years after leaving the church. And it's a, kind of a metaphor, and it's there's three verses, and it's not that long, and there's three scenes, and each scene is a young man sitting in a bunker, like a, a like a, an Armageddon sort of bunker, uh-huh. um, with his parents. And he is, uh, in the first scene, he's kind of questioning, hey, what's up there? Why are we down in this hole? In the second scene, he's been up there and seen what's up there, and he's been overwhelmed, so he comes back to the hole looking for some... Uh, some kind of uh, relief from all of the wildness up there. And then in the third verse, he's kind of had enough uh, and he's got to leave for good. And there is a character in this, the dude. (laughs) And the dude is kind of a loose representation of of actually you, Steve, who who, um, kind of is just a voice kind of offering some wisdom and the right to question that uh, this young man may not have experienced before. So... It's called uh, Let Go. Cool. Go for it.
That's great. What a great tune. Thank you, Mark. Thank Thank you for being on the podcast. It's awesome. Thank you for your story. All right. Thank you, Steve. All right. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. We'll see you next on the next podcast.